0: and before I tell you where to turn in your Bible, I have a trivia question for all of you. All right, trivia question. Y'all are on the spot. My family is not allowed to say anything because I was talking to the kids about it yesterday when I was getting some of these pictures ready. So I don't want my kids to try to look like they're smart right now. But can anybody tell me what place that is on the screen? No, no, that's not that's not it. But it is, a, it is a biblical location somewhere. Okay? Alright, so you all don't know? Alright, I don't take this too personal. I'm trying to get a point across. What's wrong with you people? Do you not read your Bibles? Do you not realize that this is a spot where a story in the Bible took place? And you don't recognize that from just reading your Bibles? <laughs> now, here's the thing. Okay? I'm getting on to you. But yes... You are not going to read a story in the Bible and be able to see a picture of that place and know that. Okay, so understand that because um, this we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is a it's a very dispute. that's very disputed what the meaning of it is, and many people, you know, on the Baptist end, one of the things that we use to prove what how we interpret that Scripture is we talk about the actual place and the location of where it happened. And that's proof. But for the person that's just reading the Bible, how in the world are they supposed to know that? And the what you see there isn't proof of anything because God knew... That most people were not ever going to get to travel there and see the place. Okay? So, uh, you know, you're not going to read a story in the Bible, especially when it doesn't even describe the location, and see a picture of it and know what it is. So, uh, don't feel bad. I was just messing with you to get a point across. But, I want us to go to Matthew chapter 16 and I'll tell you what this place is. Matthew chapter 16. And then, you're going to, after you read the story, you're going to say, Brother Tommy, how do you know that's a place? Because that's what they told us when we went on the tour over in Israel. I <laughs> I don't know for sure how they know. And the truth is, it might not be. Okay, It doesn't really matter. And so when we're interpreting this Scripture, we are not going to use what we know about that place that you see on the picture as proof of anything, because that could be wrong. Okay? And tour guides are not infallible uh, like our, Bibles, our Bible is. So just keep that in mind. But that... Place is what's known as or believed to be the location of Caesarea Philippi. And we're going to read the story of what happened in what is believed to be this location right here. And so Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 says, And when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or so one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter. And this is the main verse we're going to look at tonight, verse 18, because it is very contested in the religious world, what this verse means. And we're going to put it to rest for once and for all tonight. Uh, as far as we're concerned, I guess, I don't know if we'll, uh, we'll convince the world. Uh, if they listen to this message, they'd be convinced, I believe. But verse 18, "...Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven." And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou art an offence unto me; for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So, very familiar story here. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, and it's specified here that it was in Caesarea Philippi that this took place. Okay, and he he mentions in this story how he says, "On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell." Shall not prevail against it. You know, what all is he talking about there? I'll show you a few pictures of this, but I'm going to prove to you right now, you know, I'm going to prove that I am an expert on the subject, okay? Because many people, when they preach on this passage, one of the things that proves their point is they've been to this location where Jesus said that, and that qualifies them. And check this out. Look at that. I was there, and Notice that full head of hair uh, we got going on right there, but uh, I had the privilege of going to Israel uh, several years ago back in 2000, and uh, that, is, that is one of my pictures I had there, so I, I'm, I'm in the know, okay? I've been there, uh, I, I know what this is all about, okay? And so, uh, I, I got that claim. And notice this spot right here, this cave, there, there's the water that goes in there, and apparently there's like an underwater cave that goes down real deep there, and... The pagans back in that day, you notice those carvings in the rock, there's a lot of pagan carvings and things in there. And the pagans of that day, they believed that that spot right there was the entrance to the underworld. And it's interesting that Jesus talked about the gates of hell not prevailing, and they believed that that was one of the you know, gates of hell and you know, an entrance to hell. And I remember you know, hearing that, and I saw that, and I thought, man, I wonder what's down there. And if I was a scuba diver, I might be a little spooked uh, to, to go down there. But uh, you know, here's another picture just showing kind of the you know, pagan carvings and things that you see right there. And uh, just uh, kind of interesting, that this here is a picture, that's the picture that I took of it when I was there. But, and notice also on this spot how big of a rock you have there. Okay? So kind of keep that in mind. So Jesus is there and He's talking about this rock that He's going to build His church on. And so I I want to kind of tell you what... I'll tell you the two explanations that you'll mostly hear about how this is interpreted, okay? And first off, there's the way the Catholics interpret this passage is they believe... That when the Bible says, you know, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, that Peter is the rock that the church is built on, and Peter was the first pope, and you know, and Jesus gave Peter the keys of death and hell, and and if you go over there in Israel, there's a in Capernaum where Peter was from, there is a statue of Peter there, and Peter's holding some keys in that statue, and of course it's the keys of death and hell that God gave to Peter, the first pope. And that's what they teach. They make a big deal about it. And, you know, and of course, Baptists, you know, Peter, you know, first of all, Peter wasn't a pope, which is absolutely true. You know, Peter doesn't hold the keys of death and hell. You know, Peter's not the rock that the church was built on. And then, so the way Baptists will usually interpret this is when Jesus said, Behold, thou art Peter, well, what did Jesus call, what did Jesus call Peter? Does anybody know what name Jesus called Peter? He called, well, The term the Bible used was Cephas. Cephas. Now, I think Petrus, if I could be wrong, that's actually how Peter's name would be interpreted in the Greek. And Peter means rock. But Cephas, which is what Jesus called Peter, means a pebble. Okay. Therefore, he can't be talking about Peter as the rock because Jesus called Peter Cephas. But yet, in this passage here, Jesus said, Thou art Peter. Why did he mention that? Peter knew what his name is. But the name Peter means a rock. And Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. And that rock there is, you know, from the Greek word Petra. And Jesus, and the way Baptists will usually interpret it, is when Jesus said that, he was referring to himself as the rock that the church was built on. But, you know, when you read it, it's, I don't know, I don't like to feel like I'm stretching the Bible. You know, I'm the kind of person. I like to, th- you know, what the Bible says is what it means. I don't like people when they correct the Bible. This would be a better translation or whatever. I don't like that. I like to believe what the Bible says. And don't lose me here, okay? Because I'm going to show you some scriptures that I think we forget are in the Bible. But Jesus said, Thou art Peter, which means a rock. And upon this rock I will build my church. And he said, in verse 19, "...and I will give unto thee the kingdom, or the keys of the kingdom of heaven." Well, who's the these talking about there? He wasn't talking about Jesus, was He? Or talking about Himself. He was talking about Peter, okay? He said, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And I'm here today to tell you that I believe Jesus was talking about Peter. But don't let that scare you, okay? I'm not becoming Catholic. You see, what happens sometimes, people will take something from the Bible and they'll misuse it. They'll get off on something and then it's like well we've got to fix that so we take a counter stance where we go the other direction the wrong way. And I you can say that Peter is the rock that the church was built on and not be getting wacky, not be going Catholic, because I'll show you another passage in the Bible that I think we forgot is there. And go to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two. Now there's a lot of Ephesians chapter two that people like to ignore. Okay, we all love for by grace are ye saved uh, we all love that verse, but we quit reading when it gets to the part where it says, um, you know, that we are of the commonwealth of Israel. You know, that we don't, we don't. I know people don't like that verse, but it's there. You know, we who were nigh or made or far off or made nigh by the blood of Christ. Um, and then, uh, what verse was I going to? Verse nineteen and verse nineteen. Notice what this says. Now therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. And what, I'm, what right here is saying that the apostles were foundation, weren't they? Just a part of it. So Peter is they are part of the foundation that the church was built upon. So Jesus was exactly right in what He said there. He points that out. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build My church in the gates of hell. Peter was one of the apostles, was he not? And doesn't it say in Ephesians 2 that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles? So, it seems pretty consistent, doesn't it? Now, obviously, Jesus is the main foundation. It says in that passage that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ, He's the preeminent one. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says, "...For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building, according to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder. I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon." For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So, understand that interpreting that passage as Peter, as a rocker, part of the foundation, we are not giving him any extra prominence that he does not deserve. Jesus Christ, of course, is the main foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. But it does say in Ephesians that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, what does that mean? Apostles and prophets. Anybody want to speculate? What would that mean? So really, all right, without answering that question, here's maybe a little easier question. What is the foundation of the church? Exactly. Jesus Christ, of course, and the Bible. Well, who's the Bible written by? The apostles and prophets. The apostles and prophets. That's exactly what he's talking about. The found Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And guess who wrote some of the Bible that we have? Peter. Peter wrote some of the Bible that we have, and therefore he is a part of the foundation that the church is built upon. And uh, the apostles are Luke chapter sixteen. I'll show you. Uh, I want to show you. Well, I'm going to be jumping to a lot of scriptures. If you want to try to follow along, it's great. But uh, we don't have time. You guys are going to get more scriptures tonight than about five years of Catholic services. Okay, so uh, you know there's going to be a lot of a lot of scriptures just to prove that I'm not just making this stuff up. when you put the Bible together, uh, it, it all fits perfectly. but you know so understand the prophets, the apostles that's talking about the Word of God. That is very clear that that's what it's talking about. and you know they were the ones that preached the gospel, they were the ones that laid the foundation. okay They went around and when they preached, they preached, from the prophets, they preached from the Old Testament, and then later, after God inspired them to write the New Testament, now we have those things. And now we're not laying a foundation anymore; we already have the foundation. Okay, I we I don't go around, and I don't I, I'm not supposed to preach any new stuff. Okay, the foundation for everything we need's already been laid by the apostles and prophets, and we have, and that is this completed Scriptures that we have today. And so, understand that. But some examples to prove that that's what it's talking about. In Luke chapter 16, verse 29, after the rich man tells Abraham, send Lazarus back to my brothers so he can tell them about this place. He didn't want his five brothers to go to hell. And Abraham saith unto him, they have Moses and the prophets. Okay, Let them hear them. And He said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rose from the dead. He was talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And everybody knew that. He's talking about the Old Testament if those were the prophets. And Moses. Genesis. The Deuteronomy. He said they have those that they can listen to. And, that's, uh, and then in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. That was Jesus Christ. He's preaching and He's proving that He was the Messiah and He did it with Moses and the prophets, which we would call the Old Testament. Verse 44, And He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. John 1.45 Philip findeth Nathanael and saith in him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Acts 26.22 Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. Acts twenty eight twenty three, and when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law and out of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. Notice what that was. And they used that in the book of Acts. They used the Old Testament. why did they use the Old Testament? They were laying the foundation for the church, weren't they? And then, Paul and Peter and James and John, those guys, they wrote under the inspiration of God. They wrote more Scriptures that they went and took and they sent to the churches telling them how to run, telling them how to operate, teaching the doctrines that they were supposed to pass down from generation to generation. They laid the foundation. The law, Moses, the law, the prophets, the apostles. And so, the foundation of the church the rock that the church was built upon, of course, Jesus Christ is what it's all about. I mean, Jesus Christ is the Word, is He not? It's, I mean, the Word, while Peter and Paul and John and James, while they wrote the Scriptures, they did it under the inspiration of God, didn't they? And therefore, you know, the Old Testament, New Testament, it's all about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation. The Word of God is the foundation. And it refers to it as not the Old and New Testament as a foundation, but the prophets and the apostles. They are the foundation. Therefore, Peter is the rock that the church is built on. And I know that sounds terrible. You hear that. It it, it, it kind of pains me to say that. You know, I feel so Catholic saying it. But it is what the Bible says and it's consistent with what we read. But we're not giving Peter any... Extra promise. Okay? He was not the first pope. Alright? You know, God never instituted a pope for the church that was that came hundreds of years later by a group that is not the church. And that's a, that's another uh, subject for another day. But so notice how he says, you know, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay, now what is what does that mean? What are the gates of hell? I showed you the picture here. In Caesarea Philippi, that they you know they believe, uh, you know that they believe was the gates of hell, according to history. Okay, the Bible does not tell us, you know, that when Jesus said this, he pointed to a water, you know, a cave where there was water that the pagans believed was an entrance to hell. Okay, uh, you know, so we don't even know for sure that that is Caesarea Philippi. And, you know, and some people could take it and say, you know, this is proof. You swim down there far enough. You know, you'll end up in the underworld. Okay, that uh, while that's pretty cool and scary, uh, that doesn't mean anything. Okay, uh, that doesn't that not prove a thing. But um, that term "gates of hell." The only time you see the Bible talk about that, it's mentioned just in this passage, and then in Mark, um, it tells the same story, and it, of course, the gates of hell are mentioned again. So, what what is he talking about with the gates of hell? Because you know, I mean, what is that all about? And then that, then the, the question comes to mind, and this is one that you know there's a lot of speculation on. But I think if we take a look at the scriptures, I think it's it's very clear the answer to this. And it's one that you know, I guess I think I, you know, I hate to admit I've had stuff wrong before, but you know, I, I've had the wrong idea on a few things before. You know, so I'm just gonna, uh, that's enough said right there. I'm having, I'm having a tough time saying a lot of stuff tonight, <laughs> but here's the question did Jesus go to hell okay did Jesus go to hell you know what did he mean when he said when he said the gates of hell will not prevail because right after he tells them about the gates of hell not prevailing what was the very next thing that he talked to them about he talked to them about how he was going to be killed and three days later he was going to rise again that was exactly Right after he tells them this, he talks about it. And I believe when he talks about the gates of hell not prevailing against the church, I believe a part of that was saying the gates of hell were not going to hold him. We're not going to stop him. And I know many people don't believe he went to hell, but let's look at some verses in the Bible. And I'm going to show you. This very first one is, I think, the one that threw me. Um, I kind of I think I had, uh, I had this one wrong. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to... I'm going to show you that Jesus did go to hell. And I'm going to show you some Scriptures. I'm going to kind of take the long way to prove it. And there's a real easy way I can prove it. But I'm going to do it the hard way at first. And then I'm going to show you a real easy way to prove that He did go to hell. But Psalms chapter 16, verse 10 says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer, thine Holy One, capital H, capital O, -O 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 thine Holy One, to see corruption. Now, right there, I always thought, thought that, well, that's David talking. He's talking about, you know, when he goes to paradise, which is in hell, the good part of hell. <laughs> that, you know, he wasn't going to stay there. That after Jesus died, he was going to go down there and he was going to lead him out of there. Okay? That's what I always thought. But, uh, as I studied some of this and I double-checked, triple checked, quadruple-checked, I'm like, that's not what it's talking about. This is actually, in chapter 16, verse 10, it's talking about Jesus Christ. It was referring to him when he said, thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. How can that be talking about Jesus Christ? He said, my, of course that's talking about David. You really think that? Are you going to argue with me? Okay, well, fine. I'm glad you're arguing with me because I'm going to prove you wrong now. (laughs) Look at Psalms chapter 22. I love these one-way arguments, you know, because you win them every time. (laughs) Psalms chapter 22, verse 1. To the chief musician upon... Don't even say that. A psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Why art Thou so far from helping Me and from the words of My roaring? Boy, aren't those words familiar? My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Who said that? Jesus Christ, didn't He? On the cross. Look at verse 7. All they that see Me laugh Me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that He would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Does that sound familiar? Well, that sounds exactly like what people said to Jesus on the cross, didn't it? Verse 16, For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Did David get get crucified? Did they pierce David's hands and feet? At some point, this is a prophetic passage, isn't it? I think we all agree with that. Verse 17, I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. And doesn't it say in Matthew when that was actually happening that the Scripture might be fulfilled? Didn't we read before that Jesus used the Psalms to prove, it specified the Psalms to prove that he was the Messiah. So if we believe all those things we're talking about Jesus, it's not a stretch when he says, Thou will not leave my soul in hell nor suffer thine holy one. Well, we know the holy one with the capital H and capital O isn't David. I don't think it's a stretch to say that that was Jesus talking there. Very clearly. And then Isaiah 53 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He yet opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief... When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Who do you think that's talking about? Well, of course, that's Jesus Christ. And remember the Ethiopian eunuch? We talked about him last Sunday? That was the passage he was reading. And he asked Philip, who is he talking about? Himself or of some other man? And he began at the same passage and preached unto him Jesus. So while these passages in the Old Testament clearly are talking kind of in a past tense and talking kind of in a first person, we know they're talking about Jesus Christ. And here in Psalms, He said, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. So obviously, Jesus went to hell. So, I just proved to you the hard way that that's what it's talking about, but now I want to show, prove the easy way that Psalm 16.10 is talking about Jesus. Look at Acts chapter two. In verse 29. Okay, I could have just went here, but I want I want to do it the hard way to show I studied and had some other verses. Okay, Acts 2:29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, in his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ that His soul was not left in hell, neither His flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. So right there, that proves it right there, isn't it? Psalm 16 is talking about Jesus. Otherwise, uh, Acts chapter 2 isn't right. So clearly, Jesus... Did go to hell. Ephesians chapter four, verse eight. Wherefore he saith, When he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Okay, now what's that mean? Well, well the lower parts of the earth. That that was talking about that was talking about paradise. That was talking about Abraham's bosom, right? Okay? Well, wait a minute. You all think that too? You're going to argue with me on that? Well, good, because I'm going to prove you wrong again. <laughs> it says in Psalm 63, verse 9, But those that seek My soul to destroy it shall go to the lower parts of the earth. Well, what do you think that's talking about? Do you think God was going to send them to paradise? Is that what He's saying? I'll show you guys. Those of you who seek My soul, God's going to send you to paradise. He's going to send you to Abraham's bosom. No, He's talking about hell. Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, you know, so you mentioned Abraham's bosom, what's that talking about? Well, Abraham's bosom, okay, you remember what the Abraham said about said to the rich man when he said, Now he is comforted, and thou art tormented? Well, where did he see Lazarus? He saw him in Abraham's bosom. What does that mean? It means he was hugging him. Isn't that what you do when you comfort somebody? You hug him? So he was literally in Abraham's bosom. He was being hugged by Abraham. That's well. That's why he was talking talking to Abraham there. If you want to interpret the Bible literally, I know we don't like to do that sometimes, but it that's basically exactly what it means. And so, but then, okay, if hell's in the heart of the earth and Lazarus was in heaven how did they see each other what's that all about okay well go to Isaiah chapter 66 verse 22 now i'm just going to admit this next part doesn't really seem that pleasant but it's it's bible so you know we we're going to we don't we're not allowed to just pick what we like and leave out what we don't like but Isaiah 66 verse 22 it says, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Okay, so this is clearly talking about in the future, okay? We're talking about new heavens and new earth. It says, And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me For their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? You know, it's more profitable to pluck the eye out and to go through life with one eye. I'm totally butchering the quoting of the Scripture. Than to go to hell fire where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Why would Jesus mention those little facts? Why would He mention those little details and not explain them? He didn't need to explain them because they knew Isaiah chapter sixty-six. This is talking about hell, and here we see that in heaven you can see hell. How? Heaven's in the sky and hell's or heaven's in the sky and hell's in the heart of the earth. How do we? I don't know. How is heaven in the sky and we can't see it? Okay, you know, how is hell inside the earth? Yet we can't like, you know, dig a hole down there. I know they dug a hole down there and put a microphone down there and they heard the screams. You know, we've all heard that story before. But I, I don't understand how all that works. Okay, you know, we're getting into the spiritual world here. Uh, it doesn't operate, operate under the same rules that we do in the physical world. So, you know, don't ask me to explain all that. But it's clear that heaven can see hell and vice versa. That's clear in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And it lines up with what we see in Isaiah 66, verse 24. And in Revelation 14, verse 9, it says, "...and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone." In the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So, right here, we see that the smoke of their torment ascends up. They're in the presence. So, obviously, you can see hell from heaven. And based on what we see in Luke, you can see heaven from hell. And that doesn't sound, I don't know if I like the idea of seeing hell you know and imagine too being in hell and being able to see heaven and see what you missed i mean what a horrible thought that is if for those who are lost but it's very clear that jesus did go to hell and it wasn't talking about paradise where he went it's the reason that the, and the only place where we get that paradise being down there is from the story of Rich man and Lazarus, but yet in Isaiah and in Revelation we can see that they can see each other. And, uh, from, you know, and from heaven and hell they can see each other. But there's a great gulf fixed. You know, if you're in heaven, you're not going to get to hell, and vice versa. So uh, you know, how does that all work? Don't know. We're in the spiritual world, I can't draw a diagram for you to explain how it all works. I wish I could. That'd be that'd be pretty interesting to see, but I can't do it. So thanks to Christ. Who got victory over the gates of hell? So when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail, he went and hell didn't hold him, did it? I mean, three days later he came up out of that grave. The Bible says that you know God raised him from the dead. The gates of hell did not prevail over Jesus Christ, and it is not and it has not prevailed over the church. And so, how do we gain victory? Okay, because eh, the gates of hell. All right, this has been brought before you know. Gates of hell will not prevail against the church and it's always illustrated that when there's gate when it's talking about the gates of hell, if they're not going to prevail, that means we're supposed to be attacking hell, right? We're supposed to attack hell because if when a city okay, a city's gates, they don't carry them with them, do they? If they're gonna go fight someplace, if they're gonna go invade a territory, they don't take their gates with them, do they? Okay? Gates are meant to do two things to hold people in and to keep people out. And the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So how do we prevail over the gates of hell? Okay, How do we have victory? Because Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail. And He said, "And I will give thee the keys. Okay, and He did that after the resurrection. Because I believe He had to go to hell to get the keys. And after He got out of hell, He gave, and after... After his resurrection, he gave the keys to his disciples. And those keys have been passed down through the generations. And I believe even today, we have the keys and we have the ability today to have victory over the gates of hell and get people out. And how do we do that? Okay, Are you talking about somebody that's dead, we can pray him out of hell? No, I'm not talking about that. But we gain victory over the gates of hell by winning people to Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18 says, "...I am He that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore." Amen. "...and have the keys of hell and of death." Jude, and so, we know that Jesus Christ succeeded in getting those keys. And in Jude chapter 1, verse 22, okay, this is where we see you know, how do we you know, succeed. It says, "...and some have compassion making a difference." And others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Pulling them out of the fire. Okay, what does that mean? You see, and in John chapter three, verse eighteen, right after for God so loved the world, we see that he that believeth on him is not condemned. If you are if you believe in Christ today, you're not condemned, you are not going to hell. In fact, the Bible says that we're saved today, right? Even though our salvation's not complete, Romans 13.11 says that for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Okay? So we were sealed and when we got saved, when we believed, we it's, you can say that you're saved and be absolutely right. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you got saved, you're going to heaven, nothing can change that, but yet the Bible still says our salvation's nearer. Okay? Truth is, we're not like Christ yet, are we? But if you believe in Him, it will happen. So, in a sense, as far as God's concerned, you're as good as in heaven. But if you're lost, you're as good as in hell. Romans three eighteen: He that believeth not is condemned already. I mean, if you're if you're lost, you're one breath away from hell. I mean, you belong to the devil. At any moment, that things you know something could happen, and you are done for. And when you get saved, I mean, you literally have been snatched from the flames of hell. You have, I mean, that's why it says you've been saved. All right, you got, you got saved, and so. Whenever that's the way that we can prevail, we do have the keys, okay? And if we will go and take the gospel to people, people who are lost, people who are on their way to hell, if they will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they can be saved. They don't have to go to hell. And we literally can prevail over the gates of hell by giving people the gospel, by rescuing them. From that place, of course, once that time comes where they die, if they've not made that decision yet, it's too late for them. You know, we're not gonna, we can't go and get anybody out of hell that's already there, in a sense. But I believe that's what Jesus was talking about. We can change people's eternal fate. And before you got saved, the Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And when you got saved. You were quickened, you were brought to life. I mean, things changed. You became a new creature in Christ. And anytime somebody gets saved, I mean, they have gotten victory over the gates of hell. Why were they able to do that? Because of Jesus Christ. And so when in Jesus He gave those keys, and now we can take the gospel to the world. We have that we have that authority. And the gates so the gates of hell though also could be a reference to the principalities and powers of hell. Okay? So by the gates of hell. You know, it could be talking about just the arms and powers of hell, the principalities and powers. Many times in the Bible, when it talks about somebody sitting in the gate, or when it talks about the gates of the city, that was kind of like the uh, you know where the leadership would meet. That was where a lot of the decisions and things were made, and where the judges sat. And that's where you know, uh, depending on where people sat in the gates, it kind of showed their rank and it showed their power. And you know what, hell has a hierarchy don't they i mean you've got satan of course that's ahead of it and they they are satan and his demons are doing everything they can to keep us from giving the gospel out to keep us from doing what we're supposed to do to keep people from coming to christ we are fighting real forces are we not the bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers rulers of spiritual wickedness and high places okay so there is i mean there is an authority structure out there there is a real force with power that we can't even imagine that we are up against when we're trying to win people to Christ but yet we can have victory through Christ can't we i mean we can't even comprehend you know the power that the devil has compared to us he's so much more powerful than we are by ourselves, but with the power of God, with the whole with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can prevail over the devil, can't we? Therefore, improving God did. Jesus did succeed over the gates of hell, and people are still getting saved today, two thousand years later. Why? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And thank and thank God for what? Because Jesus got victory, he has the keys. And He's passed them on to us. How does that work exactly? When did He do that? When did He hand over the keys? Verse 19, chapter 16, says, I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What was that talking about? He's talking about the authority. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven? That sounds pretty big. I'm planning on speaking more on this in a couple weeks probably. But John chapter 20, verse 22, I believe is when Jesus kind of handed over the keys. And He says, And when He had said this, He breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. How is that passing the keys on? Look at the next verse 23. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. And unto whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. Well, that sounds like some pretty big authority right there, doesn't it? But if that's not clear enough, Acts chapter 8, verse 15. This is later on. This is the apostles, of course, they went and they passed this authority on to other people to go and start churches. It says in Acts 8, 15, "...who when they were come down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost, for as yet He was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost." passing that authority on that they got they got from Jesus Christ Himself. 1 Corinthians 5, 4, "...in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus." We talked about that passage on Wednesday showing the authority that God gave to the church. That He passed on to the church. And he and okay, why did God give us all this authority? Was it so we can talk about how powerful we are and how much authority we have over everybody? Okay, what was that authority he gave us? Well, it was the keys of death and hell. It was the keys so we could prevail over the gates of hell. What this authority is that he gave us is the authority to go out and preach the gospel. To go out and to be witnesses and to baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, we're allowed to do that. He gave us that authority. He gave us that power. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the authority He gave us. It's not just so I can get up here and I was like, "All right, folks, y'all see that authority? Well, I'm pastor. All right, so that puts me way up here. All right." I'm gonna come all to your house and y'all gotta change everything I don't like. Okay? Now, while I might enjoy that power, that's not what it's talking about. But I do have the power and the authority to preach the gospel and to tell you about Jesus Christ. I have the authority, you know, to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Now I I have the authority. I've had I had men of God that laid hands on me and they prayed for me and I was ordained, like the apostles did, to preachers then and I was sent out of a local church to start this church. And we have the authority to do the very same thing. If the Lord calls someone to preach here, we have the authority. We can lay hands on them and pray for them and we can send them somewhere so they can go start a church or be a missionary in another part of the world and they can preach the Gospel and they can do it with authority. Why? Because we've been given the keys of hell. And they can go to some other part of the world and they can pull them out of the fire. They can change their eternal faith. We have the power to do that. God gave that to us. Jesus Christ gave it. And He was able to do that because He prevailed over the gates of hell. Why did it take three days? I don't know the significance of the three days. What all took place in that three days? I have no idea. You know, We'll probably find out when we get to heaven. But I do know, while He was down there, He got victory. It couldn't hold Him. I'm sure they tried. I'm sure. I'm sure they did what they could, but they failed. They failed miserably. And because of his victory and his resurrection, that's why we don't. We, you know, we believe in the resurrection too. Okay, we don't just celebrate and believe in the death of Christ. We believe in the resurrection. There had to be a resurrection. He had to prevail over that. Otherwise, we would not be able to be saved. Otherwise, death would be able to hold us. But he got victory. He has power over hell, over death, and as a result of that, when we die, we can be with Him in heaven. As a result of that, one of these days, He's going to return, and we're going to rise from the dead. Those who are dead in Christ. Because Jesus Christ got victory over the gates of hell. And so with that, I want us to go ahead and stand.